Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. My name is Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm a co-director here at the Women in Public Policy Program, uh, uh, where we are uh, dedicated uh, to um, both uh, supporting the development of research related to promoting gender equity, but also um, helping to disperse evidence-based interventions. And this is a woman who is right at the intersection of both of those things. Um, so there are a couple of rules that I'm supposed to introduce at the beginning related to, obviously, please turn off your cell phone, which I'll make sure I do in a moment. And, um, but then also think about the fact that what's, what's exciting about these seminars is that there, are we, are we recording today? Yeah. Or not? Uh, yeah. yes. We are. Okay, great. So we have, so you're not only in this small seminar room, but you're also being joined by all of the folks now, um, tens of thousands who, um, uh, or at least we had tens of thousands of downloads, but um, hundreds of, if not thousands of folks who uh, participated in the seminar uh, virtually. So we ask that we, in, in, as you uh, frame your questions and comments, that, that they are uh, pertinent to the speaker. Um, but let me go to the fun part, which is um, introducing um, Zoe Kinneas. Zoe Kinneas is an associate professor of organizational behavior at INSEAD. And she is academic director of INSEAD's gender initiative. I think you are founding. Are you founding also of that? Or? Um, founding of the current version. Founding of the current, yes. exactly. Yes. Okay, so the rehabilitator, <laughs> the rehabilitator of INSEAD's gender initiative. And so I won't go on for long because I really want to hear from your words, but, but Zoe is really one of those people who is both <coughs> helping us to understand like theoretically, diagnostically, what is going on with certain types of gender effects that occur in relation to work and organizations, but she is also somebody who has done actual interventions, including at INSEAD, to help close um, gender gaps. So uh, please join me in welcoming. Uh, Thank you so much, Hannah. I'm really delighted to be with you all here today and talking with, with you all about some of the work that I've been doing over the past few years. And I'm going to show you a couple of slides first. You've seen these essentially probably in all of the talks that you get here. The fact that women are dramatically underrepresented in top leadership roles. And the first couple of slides, oh, my advanced clicker is not working. Um, we will get it working for you. Okay. So um, the first slide that I show you here is data from the Catalyst in the United States the dramatic underrepresentation of women in leadership. What we can also think of as vertical gender segregation in the workforce. And we see that this replicates in, uh, in Canada, which we just saw. And these data are from Singapore, which is where I'm based at NCI. So the Financial Women's Association of Singapore and I together aggregated some data looking at multinational companies <coughs> with um, their offices in Singapore to see if we have anything similar to what we see so frequently in the North American context. And what you can see here is that yes, we do. We're bottom heavy in our representation of women. Um, we do have good labor participation among women. So 47% of employees in these firms were women, but again, we're bottom heavy. And if you could click as it well. Is, it is working. It is working, yeah. thank you. Um, and the other thing that I want to point out from this particular data collection is what we can also think of as horizontal gender labor segregation, which is that the men and women are sorted into different types of jobs within these businesses. So when we look at the core business, 
representation, the women are really dramatically underrepresented, even in middle and um, slightly above middle management levels. Whereas in the support function roles, so HR, legal, these types of roles, women are much better represented. And so when I think about both the vertical segregation and the horizontal types of segregation, these are both areas that are of interest. If our goal is that everyone has an opportunity to do whatever they want to be, contribute to the utmost of their ability. So I'm really thinking about both of these. And sometimes, I'm not sure if you hear this so much um, around here, but sometimes when I start to talk about these different representations of men and women, um, both at different levels within organizations and also in different types of jobs, sometimes people suggest, hmm. well, you know, men and women are just different. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. You may have heard of my not quite favorite book. <laughs> um, and I wanna just mention this because sometimes it's even people who are very well-intentioned who are talking along these lines. We need more women because women bring a different perspective sort of thing. And I think you know, that can be true to some extent. But even when there are when we're talking about different types of characteristics, that there are some small, reliable gender differences on them. Women can be a little bit more relational than men, for example. When we think about this, this figure that I'm sharing now is if there were to be a true and reliable gender difference on some variable, something that we're interested in, let's say being relational. There's still a distribution among women, and there's still a distribution among men. The effect sizes, even when there are gender differences, are teeny, teeny, tiny. Teeny, teeny, tiny. And what that means is that there are a lot more women who are more masculine than the average man, and a lot of men that are more feminine than the average woman. But we're so good at sorting out categories. The human mind is very well adapted to oversimplifying and saying men are from Mars, women are from Venus, men belong in core leadership, core business functions and in leadership roles, and women do not. But that exaggeration of differences and the creation of those differences where they are not even there is problematic for a few reasons. Now when we think about this spreading apart of those two mean differences, or the creation of differences in our minds even where they are not really there, we can think of these as stereotypes. The cognitive social psychologists have been calling these stereotypes for a long time. And these stereotypes can undermine women's ability to be successful in broadly two categories of ways. So the first one is in the minds of decision makers. So decision makers, both male and female, can hold these stereotypes about what men and women are good at and what they can bring to the table. That's a problem. But I'm not going to talk much more about that today. I really want to focus on the second thing that can happen with respect to these stereotypes that undermines women's ability to be successful. And so when we think about these stereotypes, 
I'm, and how they influence women in this way. Claude Steele, in his, I'm going to be controversial, germinal work on stereotype thread. <laughs> So it took a second. Um, we always say seminal, but gendered language, and I like to be a little bit. Um. So in his journal work on, on stereotype threat, showed that members of underrepresented groups can underperform relative to their ability when they are in contexts where those identities are salient. And when these identities are salient are when we are aware that there's a stereotype about the in-group, dramatic underrepresentation, and there are other ways that these, there could be cues in the environment that this particular social identity that someone has is relevant to performance in the domain and is in the air. So he calls it the thing in the air. And for those who may not know this very well already, I do recommend his book, Whistling Vivaldi. It's a very um, easy read, very engaging, almost narrative about this phenomenon. Uh, but stereotype threat, which we also can think of as social identity threat, or identity threat, poses three main problems. The first one is with respect to underperformance relative to ability. We also know that this influences well-being of the people who are members of negatively stereotyped groups. And finally, it can influence the engagement of members of negatively stereotyped or underrepresented groups in particular context where those negative stereotypes or underrepresentation are salient and relevant. And I have become increasingly interested in this disengagement part of the story in the last couple of years. The performance part is very important, particularly in academic settings. And, um, context where objective performance really matters. We do want to be thinking about this. But the disengagement part becomes part of the story when we talk about women opting out, in quotations, opting out. So when we think about what's really going on in situations where women are not putting their names forward for positions or choosing what appears to be a choice to not go into a particular type of job, to not go into a particular field, I would argue that this disengagement, psychological disengagement and sometimes even leaving, can partly be attributed to stereotype threat. So, yes. Yeah, um, just a quick question of clarification on this disengagement yeah. piece because it's paradoxical in a sense because the original work shows that stereotype threat yeah. is most likely to affect people who are engaged. Yeah, and who do care about the domain. And so you need to care about your performance in it to even be susceptible to stereotype threats. So can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So it is the very threat that makes me think it's not worth it. And so the, the idea is that this is really a double whammy. So the underperformance happens, can happen potentially for two reasons. So the original experimental work was showing that students tried even harder, and because they were trying so hard, their working memory capacity and their ability to really solve the complex problems was undermined because they were so busy worrying about the negative stereotypes and trying to make sure that they proved them wrong, which absolutely happened. It can be part of the story with respect to performance. But what's happening at a deeper level, before we even get to this juncture point, if you will, of whether to try even harder, 
or to disengage and say, forget it, I'm not even gonna play, is a concern about confirming the stereotype. So it's interesting, I'm really glad you asked the question to clarify. It's sort of a, a fork in the road, if you will, and it can happen sort of initially, but I think it can also happen over time, where I try and I try and I try, and I see that trying so hard isn't even working, because I bombed. I really care, so the disengagement can also happen there. So when we get, especially when we get beyond the experimental, the early laboratory experimental work, the disengagement part of the story becomes um, more and more a part of the, of the issues that we see in the organizational contexts. And I'm glad you asked a question as well. I'm happy to take questions as we go through. So please don't be shy. Yes, in the back. So I'm curious about disengagement because there also seems like you can disengage from the identity itself. Yes. Um, and thinking about you know women who are in this situation, they'd rather say the stereotype doesn't apply to me because I'm not that kind of woman or I don't want to be in that domain. And so I don't know if there's any work to mention like when do they go down one path of disengagement from the other? Because if you disengage from the identity, you stay in the domain, but you don't identify with the social identity yeah, that's yeah. at play in the domain. Yeah, so thank you for pointing that out. Disengagement can be used to refer to both the disengagement from the identity as well as from the domain. The disengagement from the identity, so I, I don't know when. Simple answer to your question. Um, there, these processes are so complex that it's hard to, hard to really identify. But the consequences of those two different types of disengagement are very different, right? But I think they both have potential to undermine the increased gender equity or, or gender balance in our organizations because women who disengage from their, their female identity are less likely to be thinking about these issues as being advocates, potentially. And ones that are disengaging from the field are just not there at all. So that, again, there's sort of a, 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 another branch where we can have negative outcomes on, on both sides. But um, when we get to the second half of the talk, we'll, we'll be talking more about when women are more likely to be engaging in these types of change efforts. So, so we'll come back there in a little bit. Okay. Um, so to the study sequence, well, and you'll, you'll see where we get back there in just a second. I'm gonna talk about five different studies today, but the, it's a little complex how I have it mapped out, so I just wanted to give you a visual to, to make sense of this. So the first thing I'm going to be talking about is an intervention, this is the one that, that Hannah mentioned earlier, that was designed to buffer women in business school against potential stereotype threat in the context. Business schools are pretty masculine in their context. Competitive international business itself is. And we see MBA programs as being both mirroring that, so they create what you see out in the business world, and they are also a very important point where what happens there can almost imprint or sort of set a foundation for what happens for women going forward. So this is a place that we, we really wanted to be working. And we, um, what I'll share with you is two studies that follow almost exactly the same methodology. It's a, essentially a replication, the second one. Um, and then we'll transition from there. So these are findings that are, that are already published. Then I'll um, share with you findings from a global alumni survey. These are international business people, um, some of them quite senior in global leadership kinds of roles. Because when we're thinking about these effects of stereotype threat, 
what happens when we're relatively young and in identity formation stage can be different than what happens over time. So we also wanted to look at more um, advanced business leaders. And here we'll be talking about a, a different form of resiliency bolstering, but we'll, we'll get there in a minute. Um, both of these working on how to uh, protect the self-systems of women in these contexts. And then to this, to this point about who is really advocating for more gender equality in their organizations. We started thinking about how stereotype threat is typically considered to be bad, and it is, right? So the things that we'll be talking about in the first half, these different effects that we were talking about, I'll come to you in just a second, um, are of course undermining the gender equity and gender balance. But might there be anything positive that comes of this? And so we'll start to think about how the experience of stereotype threat can actually motivate change for women in masculine contexts for the last bit of the talk. And we have two um, surveys of global MBAs. And then we'll return back to the alumni survey that I mentioned before, the more advanced business leaders to also look at this at the end. And you had a question. Yeah, I'm just wondering, maybe you mentioned it and I just missed it, but I'm thinking in a lot of these settings, like it might be rational to act in a way consistent with stereotype trends because I think a lot of women, you know, like maybe um, if I do act in a masculine way or um, I ask for a promotion or act, you know, that might actually have backlash. So I think, I, I don't know if you've uh, talked about this yet, but I'm curious like, what the thoughts are on that. Like, it might, I might understand that I should be asking for this, or like my merits are enough, or I should act in this way, but I might also understand that if I do, I might come off as bitchy or I don't know. Yeah, no, that's a really great question. And so, if we are aware of the gender stereotypes, that makes all of the effects of stereotype threat more strong. So, if I were somehow blissfully unaware about gender stereotypes at all, Maybe I grew up in a bubble, and I don't know that there are beliefs out there in the world that men and women are different, then it, it's not going to have any impact on my behavior. But my behavior, my performance, my emotional states. And so when you, you asked if it's rational or not, which I find to be a, a tricky way of thinking about this, because maybe functional is a word that, that I prefer for these, these types of questions. And it depends what we mean by functional. So if my goal is to survive in a hostile context, then it's functional or rational to do what's expected, right? If, however, the goal is to be doing the most adaptive thing that can also improve the situation, then maybe less so. So we, we might get into a, a little bit of, of hair splitting on this, but it is really an interesting question. And what's adaptive, what's functional, what's rational in these contexts are important questions. Um, but I think I'm going to move on to talk a little bit more about, did you have a question? No, I was just going to add yeah. to that. I think that, I think actually your first, I think your RCTs help you get yeah. a little bit of that distinction because you're, you're, you're changing one without a, an ob obvious evidence of a 
that, that type of cost. But maybe, I mean, the, the, yeah. just your first study might, might, might help to respond to the, I mean, it, yeah. there are two different mechanisms. There are two different mechanisms. And I'm also thinking, um, I'm going to show a figure in a little bit that Tara's work actually sort of fits the model of how I'm thinking about things as well. So I think we will, we will get into that a little bit more as we move forward. Um, yes. So I also just wanted to share with you that these two um, sort of stories that I'll be sharing with you with the climate survey data and the alumni survey data are papers that are in press and in preparation. So um, the, the silver lining story, this idea of how stereotype threat can potentially be beneficial in this one way is something that we're still really working on. So I would really value your thoughts, your input on that for us to be able to strengthen that work as well. Um, so this is the, the model that I was just alluding to a second ago. And I was meeting with Michael Norton earlier and we were talking about what we're excited about these days. And this is a, a conceptual model that I've become a little bit obsessed with. And what I have up here is the fact that a masculine culture influences social identity related self system, which in turn influences adaptive outcomes. This particular path is one that we've been thinking about a lot, really a lot. And this model is adapted in case you're interested in following my obsession with this. It's a model that's adapted from uh, Jeff Cohen and David Sherman's self-affirmation work. What I'm talking about here is a little bit different from that, but it can give you an idea of what, what I'm talking about. So this is a negative cycle, but you notice that there's also feedback loops in what we believe is really happening in the real world. So when you try to intervene on a system like this, you need to pick a point at which to intervene. Right? And we've chosen to intervene at this point where the culture can be influencing the self-system before it gets to the adaptive outcome, which in this first series of studies, it, we're talking about the performance of MBAs in the classroom. But it is a broader question, so if you're interested in this kind of, kind of theory, I'm happy to talk through more. Um, so this intervention that we're talking about in the first two studies, which I'm calling buffering number one for the talk today, is about a values-based self-affirmation exercise. Now, for those who might not be familiar with this type of intervention, what we're talking about here is a process by which all people can protect their self-systems, ways of seeing themselves, ways of understanding their place in the world by reflecting on their core personal values. Now, early work looking at self-affirmations, you were, were investigating lots of different outcomes <coughs> that are related to self-defense or self-protection. So things like self-serving biases. They're ubiquitous. Everybody wants to, to feel good about ourselves. And these values affirmations can help particularly people 
who are members of negatively stereotyped or underrepresented groups to do better in performance domains that are connected to their social identities. So the, the first paper using a, a field experiment or a randomized <coughs> control trial was Cohen et al.'s 2006 science paper. And this particular paper, in this particular paper, they introduced this intervention in sixth grade classes in racially integrated school system in Detroit, Michigan, where there was a performance gap that they had identified was in part due to the development of the children's understanding of social identity. So they found that around grade six is when children start to understand the stereotypes about academic performance and how they relate to them. So they did this intervention then as the children were starting the school year and it dramatically attenuated the racial performance gap in school. Right? So this is the foundation of this. The, this type of values affirmation had also been used in physics classes for undergraduate female students. Right, so it's, they're a bit older, they're a bit more sophisticated. They already have some idea about whether women are supposed to be good at math or not. But they're, they're just finding themselves in a physics class where they actually have to perform. They're underrepresented. The teacher's a man, <coughs> this whole type of situation. And again, they found that this sort of values affirmation, um, reflection exercise, made a big difference for those, those female physics students. And the last foundation that I want to share with you for this work is a paper that's a little bit different from what we're talking about with respect to values affirmations in some ways, if you're a traditional um, social psychologist who does um, affirmation work. But what Dan Cable and his colleagues did is they had employees during work um, onboarding do a reflection about who they are when they're at their best. What do you, what does it look like when you're at your best? How do you, what are your best characteristics? How can you bring those into your work at the organization going forward? Now, they don't talk in the paper about social identities at all, but it's an Indian call center. And so, if you're at all familiar with what happens in Indian call centers, people are brought in and asked to sound American, take American names. It's essentially saying your national ethnic identity is not valued here. Pretend to be something you're not. And the turnover rates are extremely high in these call centers in India. And what they found with their intervention where they had people, it was a, less than an hour of time spent with these employees. They were dramatically less likely to quit they were rated better in terms of customer satisfaction. They performed, they objectively performed better and were more likely to stay on the job for months following this very brief intervention, right? And so this is, these are the, the foundations for what, what I was thinking along these lines, is maybe for our female MBAs, bolstering their self-systems, affirming their, their selves can make a difference in terms of how they how they perform. Yes. I was just curious how intersectionality comes into play. You kind of alluded to it by talking about Indian identity and um, ethnic minority Americans. So how does that attenuate or affect the findings of the study? No, I'm 
great question. And the intersection between racial or ethnic identity and gender identity is or whatever. Yeah, yeah. whatever kind yeah. of other identity. No. It's really a great question. And this was one of the things that made me hesitant before we actually did this study. Our context is a business school where roughly 30% of the students are uh, European, roughly 30% are Asian, and that includes East Asia, South Asia, et cetera, and roughly 30% um, are from the rest of the world. So we have about 10, 15% from the Americas, and then we have some Africans and some Australians, et cetera. Um, and so I really wasn't sure if this would work outside the US. I really didn't know before we did. And this is one of the things that I think is quite interesting and important is that we did not find any effects of student nationality on the outcomes that I'll, that I'll share with you today. Um, we have thought more about how, um, how there might be cultural adaptations of what we're talking about to make the effect even stronger in different types of cultural contexts. Um, the values we selected very, very carefully to in hopes that they would generalize across cultures. Um, <coughs> yes. Um, but the other point with respect to intersectionality is that we are also talking about the, so we can think of it as these effects work with respect to racial identities, ethnic identities, gender identities, so sort of stacking. But then the intersection as well, um, we don't have any reason to think that they work differently if you're a member of multiple um, underrepresented groups. Yes? I find that to be shocking and odd. So, so a couple of things. One, um, you were talking about it being 30% European, and, and so I wondered, but I didn't understand what the racial makeup there was, because you were talking about this ethnic background, but not necessarily racial background. Um, and then, um, experiences of even within the United States the the racial experiences even if we're just talking about women is so drastically different I find it extremely unlikely that um, there's no kind of divide in the experience based on race because I would assume like for me I know that with a stereotype of just like the angry black woman stereotype I can make an assumption about there are things that I may be able to say and do professionally that maybe white women who have to lean more on likability can't. So to suggest, in, in this context, so to suggest that there is no, no valuable distinction, I, I'm just interested in that. So first, there are definitely differences um, across race, across ethnicity, across nationality, in the experiences of women. So we're on the same page 100% there. I, I didn't mean to, to be suggesting the opposite of that. So that is part of the story. Um, the other part of the story, however, is that affirming the self-system is beneficial in, 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 that's what we find at least. Okay. Okay. It's beneficial regardless of what those other characteristics are, those other identities are, um, is what our findings suggest, at least okay. in these couple of studies. But the other thing that I want to want to share is that what we're looking about here is what we're looking at as an outcome in these two studies is performance in courses. And a lot of the courses that they're taking during the time that we're measuring their grades are essentially math, finance, economics, statistics, these types of courses that there's sort of a right and a wrong answer. 
I mean, being able to engage well with their, their colleagues and navigate the social system can facilitate that. But this, our context for this research, it doesn't matter as much as in contexts where you're negotiating for a promotion, for example. Our outcomes are just a little bit different. So I do think that there could, and I, I appreciate the question because when we think about the match between the stereotype, and this kind of goes back to your question about what's rational or what's adaptive to. So what might be rational or adaptive to do will depend a little bit on that intersect those intersectionality issues yeah. as well, potentially. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. So when you're in a, a business school or in an organization, you start talking about values. And very quickly, I found, I was trained as a social psychologist, so I, I had to learn, this is what happens when you start talking to business people about values, is they say, oh, organizational values. We can have a win-win here. And so when I was negotiating to do these studies, the dean that I was negotiating with really wanted us to also explore the possibility of there being benefits to using the school's values for the self-affirmation exercise. Yeah, Robert's shaking his head no. Um, so the early theory, of course, suggests that this should not be the case. But it turns out there wasn't a lot of empirical work before we did this showing that those organizational values would not work. Some of the arguments for why, based on, on core evidence, were first of all, the idea that the affirmations should be separate from the source of the threat, right? So if, if you're trying to affirm your self-system with respect to something that's part of the threat, it doesn't make a lot of sense that it would be so helpful, right? Then there's also this cable et al. paper comes in, comes in very handy for our theory development, is that one of their control groups, so they had two different comparison groups so they looked at how the best self-reflection exercise compared to two different things. One was just a control control where people did nothing. And the other one was an organizational socialization task where they said, rather than reflecting on who they are at their best, they said, why are they proud to be working for this company? Because working for the company is it's a well-paying job in that context. It's sort of a, a good job. It's considered to be a, an attractive place to work. And they found that this reflecting on how the organization was good and how they were proud to be working there did not help at all relative to control. But this other, um, the best self-reflection, which is more of the self-affirmation that we're talking about, did have real benefits. And then um, Nero Savanathan et al. also have a paper in a very um, more abstract context, not related to diversity, but they found that self-affirmations in contexts where what you're trying to do is the same thing that you're affirming on, doesn't help, right? So this idea that you want them separated was suggested in the prior work before we did this. But ultimately, it was really an empirical question. And so it was partly born of my um, really wanting to be able to do this study. And the dean said, if you want to do it, you need to include organizational values, at least in one of your conditions. I said, okay, I'll do it. 
Um, but I'll share with you what happened um, as a result of the two different types of interventions and also relative to a clean control. So I guess it would depend in part on the overlap between the personal values and the organizational values and the tenure of the people in the organization and the extent to which they've internalized. Well, first of all, that yeah. they know what the organizational values are, that the organization yeah. knows what its values are. That's a whole other can of worms. And two, that they've had the chance to internalize right. those values rather than... Um, yeah, so we did this during Welcome Week, which is essentially orientation at the, at the business school, but they know what is valued at the organization. And they come, or at the school, and they come in part because they know that. So they got the right answer. When we included the organizational values on the list of 10, two of them were organizational and the other eight were not organizationally relevant. It was somewhere between 70 and 80% of the students picked the organizational values to write on. So they knew the right answer. Um, they're, they're clever MBAs. Um, but I also think there's, um, yeah, so I don't think they need to be internalized, but your question about um, the extent to which they're internalized is also really interesting to me because we don't know from these studies, to be honest, if one's own true core personal values are the same as the organization and they're unrelated to the threat, what happens? Right, so let's say I am an environmental activist. Like I really, I'm so passionate about protecting the environment and improving the environment and that's also the organization's values, we don't know what would happen in that kind of situation. We just know that they were able to select the right answer and that that was not helpful. But we'll, I'll get to the, to the results in just a second. Um, I wanna walk you through the flow of the, of the study quickly. So, of the intervention. So what happened is, as they're arriving on campus before any classes have started, they received an email invitation to reflect on their values. They spend 10, 15, maximum 20 minutes writing online about their own <coughs> values. Um, we ask them to reflect on, uh, to select from a list of values and to tell us how they know these values are important to them, how they manifest them in their daily lives, these sorts of reflection activities. And then to rate how important these values are to them on a one to seven scale or a one to five scale and they're almost all above a four. So they, they sort of get what we're doing here. They're able to select values that matter to them. After that, so they write about the values outside the classroom, then in their orientation classes, so there's an ungraded introductory course that everyone has to take. And in that course, the discussion about values was brought in. So the, the professor who is uh, an excellent male professor who does a great job teaching, just sort of brings the values into the classroom and there's a brief discussion about the, the students' values in class. Then this is the, the graded courses begin. In the second study, the replication study, we measured their self-systems. Um, so, and when I say self-systems here, we asked them the extent to which they felt self-efficacious, self-critical, um, and were experiencing self-doubt. And I'll tell you what, what happened with those three related constructs at the end. So that was measured um, around week um, five. Then there was what we call a booster. 
And so for the booster exercise in these studies, we handpicked out a few really nice quotes from the cohort and sent them as quote unquote qualitative feedback. So everybody gets a little reminder of what they've done with respect to values before the class is started. And we do this just before the exams. And then they take the exams, we grade them, and we analyze the gender gap in performance in those classes. Okay. So what we see on the left here is what happens in the, oh sorry, yes. What's the Right, so in the first one, we had one control condition, which was, well, sort of a control. It's the comparison of the core personal values and the core personal values, including organizational values. We knew baseline gender gap. So the yeah. reason why I'm asking is, in yeah. some ways this um, manipulation almost seems like you're adding in organizational values because the dean is sending it. You have a great professor who is saying like, hey, remember those values, reflect on your values. Um, and then you know they get this booster. So in some ways it seems like the organization itself is saying, you matter. Like it almost seems like a culture shift as well as a self-affirmation, which is why I'm really yeah, interesting. Um, interesting in your control conditions yeah. that may or may not have the same features. So um, the control condition in the first one, there wasn't really a control control. So it was the comparison of the core personal values, which are nothing to do with the organization. Most people pick family and friends. A lot of people pick um, being a good community member, giving something back to society. These are the types of things that people typically pick. Um, and then the, the other one was the, the um, including organizational values. That was study one. In study two, we also included a cleaner control which was reflecting on values that are important to someone else. So what do you think is going on for people who have these other core personal values that are not important to you? So everyone in all of the conditions of the study was doing something with respect to values. Um, whether they were reflecting on their own core personal values, the, the organizational values, or someone else's values is what's different. Um, but we also had, as I mentioned a minute ago, the baseline gender gap data, so we could also compare um, across the, uh, compared to those, although we don't in the paper, but, but we knew what we were looking for. Um, so, to the, to the results. Uh-oh. I wonder if I'm doing something wrong with this. Maybe we can just do this to move us forward. So, um, what we saw in the including organizational values condition was that we had a gender gap, maybe a little bit smaller than what was the baseline, but it was a statistically significant gap. Uh, yeah, thanks. And in the personal values writing condition, it was gone. Um, now, in this version, I also want to share with you that we, I was not able to negotiate for random assignment at the individual level. So this was a campus level uh, random assignment. So one campus did the core personal values and the other campus, we have two main campuses, and the other one did the, um, one did the core personal and one did the including organization. But after this, then I was able to do the random assignment at the individual level. So in the replication, the study two, we had, I think this will work. Okay. Um, it's not working. Oh, okay. Um, oops. Just, sorry, yeah, yeah. I was just telling you it's. Okay. 
I'll just tell you what's going to happen on the next slide. So in the replication with the random assignment at the individual level, we had, again, a gender gap in the what I call the control conditions, which is actually a combination because there was no difference between the... Okay. Because there was... So this, I call it controls, because this was both the condition using the organizational values and also the least important values, so writing about other people's values. And we, um, we had our, our gender gap there. And when they wrote and reflected on their own core personal values, and again, this gets to your question about whether it was a culture shift or not. So I do think there can be benefits of culture shift and recursive beneficial patterns that happen on an organizational level when we have people affirmed. But in this study, it was random assignment within section, within class, all of that. So it's really an individual effect. So, so, so yeah. can we um, assume that like in the control condition, because there seems to be an assumption here that the difference between the men and women is due to stereotype threat or underperformance mm -hmm. on the part of the women. Right. But could it be due to biases from the people grading the women? Yeah, which wouldn't well wouldn't feed into stereotype threat at all. Like no, they're performing no. on the same level as the men, but and then you you know there's lots of research that shows that if you replace Heidi with Howard and you do these things that you actually do get disparities even if everything is identical. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, and so that is built into the system here, and especially when we have the random assignment at the individual level, they're graded by the same people within the same section. So that would not be explaining the attenuation of the gap through the affirmation. Um, but why did I even think to do this intervention might be what you're really asking. And I did a lot of digging around before really trying to do this intervention, wherein we looked for differences in terms of graders, we looked for differences, and this is not to say that there's no bias in the system, because there, I mean, it's the world, and so there's probably some, some bias in the system. But what I thought was, because the graders are not the same people teaching the classes, they are, <laughs> especially, and, and remember these are mostly quad courses as well. So, uh, okay. it, it, did it. you get the number right or wrong? There's Got not it. a lot of room for Got interpretation in is the number right or Got wrong. It. And there's more threat in that domain towards women as well. Exactly. Now, um, we can, so just because you're, you're suggesting intervention that could work against the bias, we are also really interested in how affirmations might help to attenuate bias on, on the part of decision makers. So that's something that is a future direction. That's something that we're, we're thinking about more and more now. But in this study, we really thought it was more about the, the women's experience than the way that they're being graded. Yes? Um, could it also be, so I think some of the stereotypes also talks about how if you are a group that feels that like sometimes if you're someone making a prejudiced decision, so I think there was some race stuff where actually having a values affirmation intervention on a white candidate, actually on a white person who has to then evaluate a black person, um, doing the values intervention on the white person makes them less prejudiced against the white person and so and against the black person. So I wonder if because you're doing the same intervention on the men and the women, yeah, like I, is there a way of disentangling whether that this self-affirmation actually is only working in the women in and of themselves, or could the men who 
otherwise have these negative stereotypes about women when they are affirmed on something else, they then treat their female classmates different mm -hmm. and Okay. <laughs> no, no, so actually, well, I was actually meaning to go back here. Okay. So here where we did the campus yeah. level random assignment, that could be part of the story. Mm -hmm. But remember in this one, it's individual level random assignment to condition. So the men in the class might have... Right, but there's still like, yeah, there's still the men, like, they're, like half the men are treating half the women better. Right, but it's randomly assigned at the individual level. And so this, this is completely ruled out with the random assignment at the individual level because they're interacting with the same people. The women who got the intervention and the ones that did not okay. are interacting with the same guys. Right, so I guess it yeah. ruled out like that main effect, but there still could be some different interaction. There certainly could be. There certainly could be. And um, particularly if we think about work by, say, Valerie Perdivon, who's been looking at how networks are affected by affirmations. So I think when we think about the culture change to your earlier question and your, your question as well, it we don't believe that these effects are happening in a vacuum. That's certainly not the conclusion that I would draw from this. But it, the, the conclusion that I, I want to draw from this is that it happens in part on a really individual level. And I do want to share with you the, the process data as well. And this is just from the second study, but we remember in that week five of the eight-week term, we asked them to just share with us, male and female students, everybody, to just share with us the extent to which, and these are um, between four and eight item scales for the different variables, very reliable. They form three distinct um, factors in, uh, in um, both exploratory and confirmatory factor analysis. And it, in this study, Self-doubt was the, the money maker, so to speak, in terms of the, the women's performance. So we do have a gap in self-doubt in the control conditions that is eliminated in the experimental condition, the, the core personal values condition. Yes? Just go back to the previous slide and the one before. Obviously, there is a reduction in the gender gap in both sides. There is also a decrease in work towards being of the male population. Where is that from? What do you think that so, points out? No, it's a great question. And first of all, this is not a statistically significant change in either of the studies for the men. Um, but there are um, there's a couple things that could be going on, although I don't want to draw too much, um, too many conclusions from non-statistically significant um, differences. The first thing is that there is a, a Z curve in the core course performance. So if it actually is a Unlike most of the world, this actually is a zero-sum game. Um, I mean, we, we often think of things in terms of zero-sum games even when they're not. But that could be part of the situation in this study in particular where the random assignment was um, at the course level or at the campus level, uh, even though this was not a statistically significant reduction. Um, the other thing that could potentially be happening and I don't want to speculate too, too much on this, but there's some work suggesting that affirmations might reduce stereotype boost for members of dominant groups. So if the identity is threatening for members of the negatively stereotyped groups, might it be helping those who are members of positively stereotyped groups? So I, but I'm hesitant to, to say too much along those lines because we don't, our data don't um, lead us to that conclusion, number one. And number two, there's not much, yes. 
Um, so you describe your student body as being quite mixed, Europeans, yes. etc. So um, I come from a very different culture where I actually was raised thinking women are better in math than men. Um, Which country is It's Turkey and oh, yes, nice. so I was shocked when I came here, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and most of my professors were women in economics, so I, it's, it's really new to me, so I, thankfully uh, <laughs> I think, but I was wondering within the, um, so you, you mentioned some of your explanations related to stereotyping, but I, do you have any evidence that the group that you are treating have the same sense of you in terms of what uh, what type of stereotype they're diverting to? I mean, how do we, is, is there a measure? Does it differ across different cultures? Yeah, so we've done a, there's two parts to the question. The first is where are there actual gender gaps in terms of women's participation in math and science and also their performance in math and science? And we know that there's huge national variance in this. Most countries share the same stereotype and the same um, performance gap patterns with respect to, to mathematics in particular. Um, so that is part of the story. We've also done analyses um, of gender gaps by nationality in our pre-existing data before we did the intervention. And we found that there were um, some nationalities that had stronger than others. But when it comes to the intervention, so the, you've got to remember that the gender gap is on average across nationalities. And the affirmation is also across all the nationalities. And the random assignment was not funny in any way. So the nationalities were equally represented in the different conditions. So the effect of the intervention could not be explained by national differences. Right? That's what benefit of of the random assignment that we had. I can also note that even in the first study where we had the random assignment at the campus level, our campuses are um, not, there's one campus in Europe and one in Asia, but it's not more Europeans on the Europe, Europe campus and more Asians on the Asian campus. They're really, it's really a global context where students move back and forth between campuses and their representation is roughly equivalent um, on the different campuses. So I, I, yes, national culture matters, but not with respect to these findings. Um, I'm just gonna move us forward because I wanna talk about a couple more, couple more studies. Um, and we stop at 1.15, right? No, 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 one o'clock. Right oh, okay, yeah. I'm gonna move faster. So um, I love your questions, but I also wanna share, I wanna, I wanna share the last few studies with you. So I, I said a minute ago how the evidence of the mediation models, the, the mediated moderation models, show that self-doubt was what was happening for our female students. But really, when I think about that self-doubt, I think of it as one indicator, if you will, of what's really happening under the surface with respect to men's and women's self-systems. When we think about what's happening for stereotype threat, I believe in situations of stereotype threat, I believe it really boils down to this concern about confirming the gender stereotypes. So this is one of the things that, that we've been thinking a lot about. And in the next few studies, we asked men and women the extent to which they were concerned about confirming gender stereotypes. 
And these are, we're not transitioning into talking about the, the survey data as opposed to the experimental data. And so the next study that I wanted to share with you looks at what, on average, helps to buffer that's already happening. So our intervention is one where we, we do something different to alter the system. But what in the naturally occurring system helps to buffer some women relative to other women against the potentially deleterious effects of stereotype threat. And so in this paper, we were thinking about social support as one of the factors that can really benefit or protect women. For those who are familiar with the um, clinical psychology and the health psychology literatures, we see that social support is generally just good for people. Right? It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you're doing, social support is generally good. Um, so that's part of the framing for this study. But there's also a fair bit of work suggesting that social support can be particularly beneficial for people who are underrepresented, members of underrepresented groups, or negatively stereotyped in the domains where they're, where they're living and working and operating. So the three broad categories of social support that we looked at were role models, right? So there's a lot of work showing that this is more motivating for women, that it, when women see identifiable role models, so successful professional women, they're more motivated to enter those kinds of contexts. Um, they feel less stressed in situations where they need to perform. Lots of findings along these lines. There's also some work that, and it, the, this literature gets a little bit messy sometimes, looking at the combination of, and not messy in a bad way, but just that there's a lot of things that are, are working together. Um, the effect of so supportive supervisors, formal and informal mentors, slash sponsors, and so these are people who um, provide um, resources for personal development would be what we would consider mentors, and sponsors are ones who advocate on behalf of the the person in question. So we asked about those as well. And then peer, so peer social support is another one that we were really interested in. So is it helpful to just buffer the self-system by knowing that I'm not alone, like we, we're, we have friendships, maybe we talk about the issues, maybe we just know that we're, we're here and there are others like me in the context. So we measured um, all of these factors. And we did this to really disentangle what's happening with these different potential forms of social support. First of all, on well-being, which is the, the downstream outcome of interest in this study, but specifically with respect to stereotype threat. So if we want to understand what's, so say I'm an organization. I think, okay, there are all these different things. One, one member of our diversity and inclusion program is suggesting we should have a mentoring program. Someone else is saying that we should develop a peer support program. Someone else is saying that we need to make more role models visible. I can only do one. Which one do I do? So that's what we were, we were looking at here. And in this survey, it was a, the complete sample of male and female alumni was almost 6,000. But for our analyses here, we focused on women. And it was a 1,286. It was a 13.8 response rate of all of the alumni that we had email, living alumni that we had um, email addresses for, which is Pretty, pretty good. We were representing 122 different countries. Um, the alumni sample is a little bit more disproportionately European because our Asia campus had opened more recently, um, but pretty good global representation. And we also had a nice age distribution. 
So the largest group was um, Generation X, but we have good representation of millennials and baby boomers as well. Um, okay. And the other thing that excites me a lot about this data set is that a lot of our respondents were in leadership positions. So 25% were in C-suite or equivalent kinds of roles. Um, so quite senior, and when we think about these, the age distribution and then also the seniority distribution within organizations, um, we get quite excited about the generalizability. So it's global, age distributed, and, um, and also including top leaders. And again, just a, an indication of their, their leadership levels, two-thirds of them describe their work responsibilities as being regional, meaning um, multiple countries, Asia-Pacific or um, the Middle East, North Africa would be what they would consider regional roles, um, or global responsibilities. And the measures that we had here were about their observations of gender bias in their working lives, the extent to which they had experienced stereotype threat at the most challenging time in their careers. So if we think about, you know, once you're already the CEO, people know you're the CEO, they know you're the boss, you may be less worried about confirming gender stereotypes. But, so, but at the toughest stage, to what extent was this part of the story for you? And then we, our outcome of interest here was work satisfaction. For those who like to see all the numbers, regression model summary table, um, what we see here, these 95% uh, confidence intervals of the indirect effect are telling us the extent to which well-being was influenced slash predicted by the experience of stereotype threat, which was influenced or predicted by observations of bias. And so it turns out that the role models was buffering the most. It was protecting the most within this host of potential social support processes. Now that's not to say that the other forms of social support are not beneficial for well-being in general. But if we want to focus on protecting against identity threat or stereotype threat, role models seem to be the most powerful for the women that we surveyed. For those, so that was the, the lots of numbers summary. This is a visual representation of the effects. We see that these other effects, the formal, informal, mentors and supervisors, the supportive supervisors, and the, the peer support did not influence women's experience of stereotype threat. And the stereotype threat did influence work satisfaction. Was that a question? Okay. So, um, the end of the social support or the end of the talk? Hmm. I mean, I have a question specifically yeah. about this. Yeah, yeah. We, I can take it now and then. Okay. So, is this Clarissa court language? Mm hmm. So, this entire time I've been thinking about Janessa Shapiro's multi threat framework. And putting all this together, I'm getting kind of a conundrum because you're saying that, you know, these women in these situations are experiencing threat that can be attenuated by self-affirmation, that means that it's a self-threat. The threat that gets attenuated by a role model threat is group threat. And so I'm trying to put some of this together. I'm wondering if this is actually a generational effect such that 
for the women who end up in like high power business settings, they're not necessarily worried about themselves at that point, but they still recognize that gender stereotypes exist and other people have them towards their group. So they're not worried about confirming negative stereotypes about their self, but they're worried about confirming negative stereotypes about their group, which is why role models work. But for these women MBAs who are just coming in, especially because you measure them when they're at the beginning, they might not have that same sense of self, which is why the self-affirmation actually works. So I guess I'm, my broader question is, how does this fit with the multi-framework yeah, yeah. threat model? So yes, it is Clarissa Cortland. Cool. And um, I'm glad because I got a, I think I took a question on the study description slide and did not tell you Clarissa Cortland postdoc. She's fantastic. Um, she is Janessa Shapiro's student. And um, when we think about the, the multi-threat framework, we actually, at one stage, were debating whether to use the multiple different items to assess both the concern about confirming with respect to the self and with respect to the group. And Clarissa shared with me that they don't always fall out in separate factors even, right? So, um, so we decided to really focus it. Um, but I do think there's something to how this could be operating a little bit differently. With that said, so if we're deciding whether to do role models versus an affirmation intervention, which I think is your question, yeah. I, we don't have empirical, an empirically based answer, to be honest, based on this, because we're talking about different studies where there, there's not a direct comparison. But our data do suggest that both can be useful. And thinking back to the, the early role models research, which is using undergraduates. So we know that role models are not only effective for more senior leaders. Um, but the extent to which self-affirmations work for much more senior women is the, question, is the part that I'm less confident in my answer on. We are currently in the process of trying to get those to do those sorts of interventions with um, just above middle managers in a, a big uh, consulting firm where they've identified the transition from leading people to leading leaders as being a point where they have a big problem with women's drop off. And um, so we want to, we really want to answer that question. I think this is the fourth organization that we've tried to do this with, and things always get a, a bit tricky. So hopefully, um, next time I see you, I'll be able to say with more confidence how the self-affirmations work for the more senior leader. Yes, last okay. question. So, so to me, right, role models, actually, you get a woman in a totally senior role, they can change the organization. Yes. And I think the best example I've seen of that is CERN, right? And what's going on at CERN, right? Where, you know, they're addressing gender head on, head on. Right? So, you know, that that's, goes beyond stereotypes, right? Absolutely. So there are multiple ways that having women in very senior roles can help. It's the role modeling. Um, it's also if they're passionate about creating gender equity, then they are in positions of power and can do that. Um, there's another organization we're, we're working closely with called Mervac. And the, the CEO there is an Australian um, real estate development company. And she has transformed the organization. So that certainly happens, and it is much more than just role modeling. But role modeling in those ways, hugely impactful. And another thing that we've been thinking about a lot in terms of the, the benefits of role modeling beyond just what happens for women and stereotype threat 
is if that can also change the stereotypes of everyone within the organization or everyone within the work context. So I think there's a lot more work to be done with respect to role models. But I want to talk about the last study. Um, so going back to this, um, to this model that I shared with you being obsessed about and how masculine culture um, can undermine adaptive outcomes through um, the self-system for women. That's the negative outcome. But we really wanted to know, can this help motivate women to make change? And so we've also explored this now in three different data sets that I'll go through quickly. The story is very consistent, which makes it easier. Um, so the question was if stereotype threat could be a driver of change. And from the prior work, this is not something that people have been talking about with respect to stereotype threat. And we know a lot of the, the, the problematic outcomes with respect to stereotype threat. They've been studied very well, very reliable effects. But there's also a little bit of work suggesting that it can at least activate women to, be, to try to prove the idea wrong. Right? There's that activation, which is consistent with the early stereotype threat work, where in the laboratory, the students were working twice as hard because they were concerned that they were going to do poorly. Yes? And is this different than stereotype reactance? So this is not so different, but what we're talking about is. Okay. okay so I'll get there. Yeah. Um, so we also know that bias awareness can predict women's support for other women. Mm -hmm. And we also know that interventions designed to create less intergroup conflict can also have a sedative effect on social change. And so this is the work that, that says, oh, we're, we look for a superordinate social identity to reduce intergroup bias. And then people say, oh, well, we're all just human anyway, so there's, like, we're not judging people on the basis of those groups. We don't need to change anything, even when there is inequality within the system. So there's these couple of hints that there might be something going on with respect to um, women being activated to change the social system as a result of stereotype threat, which is what we're looking at in these studies. Um, so it, very quickly, the, the samples for the, the um, first two surveys that I'll share with you, um, this is from a group of 1,000 of, um, students. Um, we got a 35% response rate. Um, we, okay, so we had um, two rounds of data collection, one year apart, that there were some differences between the two cohorts, but the effects that I'll be sharing with you were reliable across those two cohorts, so I've um, aggregated them for ease of presentation here. Um, this represents the, the student population being really very diverse um, in terms of Asian, European, and American. Um, we do have, um, unfortunately, underrepresentation from Africa, which is something that we're working on, but we do have... Um, which is suffering the most. I know. Well, women are suffering the most, I guess. We're working on um, it. And the questions that we included here were the perceptions of bias. So bias in the, the academic context. Um, so their, their lived experiences at the time. Their concerns about confirming gender stereotypes in the context, and we used Janessa's, um, her best 
best best loading item is the one that we use there. And then, um, or sorry, this one we used her two best loading items. And then we also um, measured their engagement with the, with the school. So how happy are they to be there? How committed are they to the school? Whether they would recommend the school to other women looking at MBA programs. And then we, and so these um, engagement and recommendations are to replicate the prior findings. So if we find that the women who are experiencing more stereotypes threat have reductions in these, then our, our samples are not weird, right? So that's just sort of a, a robustness check of the prior literatures in combination with this interest in improving the gender climate and actions they are taking to improve the gender climate in the, um, in the academic context. And what we find here is, first of all, we did replicate quite nicely what we've seen in all these other contexts with respect to the perceiving bias leading to stereotype threat leading to the reduction in organizational commitment and also um, a reduced um, tendency to recommend the school to other potentially interested students. And we also found that it motivated change. So this is where we get excited. They are saying, we want to see more gender balance. We want more equality. We want more women leaders. And I'm taking actions to make a change. And um, we also have some, some interesting findings. We coded what they said. We said, what are you doing to make change? And so we know what some of those things are. And we're also interested in what the male students are doing along these lines, although we don't analyze with respect to stereotype threat because floor effects on stereotype threat for um, men in this context. Um, which reminds me that everything that we've been talking about today assumes women in masculine work contexts. And we believe that if you were to go into a context that is very feminine, so maybe in a math class in Turkey, men are experiencing similar types of experiences to what um, our women are in this business school context and the business context. Um, but this idea that we are able to, that stereotype threat, we're not, we're not introducing stereotype threat, this becomes a, a bigger question, right? But that this has a silver lining, is something that we are um, very interested in. Um, again, just visuals, I'm gonna go really quickly. Uh, this is the alumni survey data. So with our more senior global business leaders, we saw the same effects. Um, we have done things like split by age. We haven't seen reliable differences across different patterns that we've looked at so far, which suggests that this is quite a robust effect. And when we think about what do we do with all of this, I'm gonna talk you through, I know we, um, we have to stop in just a couple of minutes. The first couple of things that, that I wanted to share with you, the, the, in terms of the buffering resiliency, I think it's clear from the talk already. We're talking about affirmations, and also social support in particular role models being quite powerful for improving women's experience with respect to stereotype threat and the downturn, um, the downstream outcomes related to that. Um, the silver lining part of the story is something that um, we're really excited about this possibility, but it's not the kind of thing where you go and design an intervention to follow up the survey data. We don't think we wanna be introducing stereotype threat because there are all these deleterious effects. So when we think about this, we want to be aware of what we're doing to buffer the self-system in a way that doesn't undermine the change motivations. So if we think about the, this um, masculine environment, the self-systems and the adaptive outcomes, 
the adaptive outcomes are women being engaged and performing well and feeling good about what they're doing and contributing to the utmost of their ability, um, which can also feed back to improve the social system. But also taking actions to improve the social system is part of the story as well. So this is something that, I, if you can just let me finish. Um, so this is sort of the, that combination is really important um, in our minds. And um, a couple of quick limitations is um, actually, I'm sorry, I need to. I need there are to no limitations. Wrong. There's no limitations. <laughs> um, you can read, the, read some of the limitations. Um, but when we think about this, I think the the most important conclusion from this are that there are some little things, relatively little things, that can move the needle a little bit. Number one. And number two, we need to be very thoughtful about the types of interventions that we're doing and identifying what is it a, a square peg or a, a what is the real problem and what is the solution that most directly um, helps to ameliorate that particular problem. And so last point is that we don't want to pretend that everything is balanced already. So the buffering resiliency against stereotype threat is not to pretend that everything is perfect now. It's to create ways that facilitate everyone being able to do their best and to improve the social system as well. And I'm out of time. Thank you. <laughs>